0: hi everyone this is kyle from the career guide and before we start our podcast today i just wanted to say thanks for listening and subscribing and i also wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a free community for graduates young professionals or really anyone that's interested in finding starting and managing their international career so go ahead and check the link in the show notes and you can join us inside the community where there's 130 plus members already striving to achieve their international career thanks again for listening and we'll see you inside the community and now on to our podcast
1: you always have to take a risk. I mean, as much as you can, of, of course you try, you try to balance the risks, but the more you are uh, willing to take a risk, the more you're ready to to, to experience different things, the more you are ready to, to take on new challenges, the more you find you work a little bit easier because If I wasn't confident enough to to just take off at that point, by the time I arrived at that refugee camp, I would have already fallen apart because what I saw was just beyond my imagination.
0: Hey, everybody. This is The Career Guide Podcast brought to you by Capacity Building International and your host, Kyle King. If you've dreamed of working abroad and having an international career, this podcast is for you. Every episode is an interview with someone from the international community. We hear their stories, how they got started, and about their life and experiences while working abroad. Each episode will provide you with personal insights, tips, and strategies to help you launch your international career. We hope you enjoy this episode, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our career newsletter so you don't miss out on your future and opportunities. Welcome back, everybody. This is Kyle King, and welcome back to the Career Guide podcast. And today we're joined by Tigista Girma, who has been working with UNHCR for a number of years, who is a professional, a mother, a traveler, in that order, born and bred in Habisha, so, Tagista loves traveling and has traveled to more than 50 countries and has actually yet to find a place that tops the seashells, which I imagine is a very hard thing to do. So, Tagista is a humanitarian protection professional and has traveled extensively to many places, more than the average person can name, and has a lot of exciting stories to share from all of them, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Tagista has a wicked, cool accent, or at least she thinks she does, and I... I am inclined to think the same, so a serious news jockey, and why do we even know about this kind of detail of what is happening in the world, type of person who is addicted to the news cycle and information going throughout the world today, a sucker for late night satirical shows such as Stephen Colbert and everyone else. So currently, Tagista is learning to be a soccer mom, that's great, fantastic, and who watches all the games of any soccer tournament from the World Cup to the African Cup of Nations, the Euro Copa America, you name it. And weekend afternoons are blocked for the English Premier League. Now that's something you don't hear very often for people who are in the United States. And so that is quite interesting to know about, but you've had an extensive international career. And I am so happy that you're here joining us today to talk about your experiences and your life so far. So Tegista. welcome very much and thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you so much and thank you for inviting me to this uh, podcast and I really understand where you come from and why you you see this uh, sharing of experiences should be a more common place to up-and-coming graduates and uh, people who consider to join the international humanitarian space because uh, I don't think many of us can say that uh, we were given such an introduction or such support before we joined this space. Some of us joined by accident, I would say. Some of us had uh, some connection or we heard about it somewhere and then we joined that and then uh, we kind of grow into it. Having this uh, support should be done more often and by more people than just you. But thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And, and I think it's really
0: important for, for, you know, recent graduates, young professionals and others to really hear what it's like to work internationally. Because it's not just about sort of the organization and the position you're applying for, you know. And I, I think oftentimes that when I think about when I first applied and you get this sort of excitement, right, about, yeah. oh, I'm going to work internationally. It's going to be fantastic. I'm going to be with this organization, whatever it is, United Nations or whatever. I'm going to travel the world. And and I think that's really exciting, but I think there's also this element behind it, which is really sort of what happens next after that. So, before we get into that, how about just sort of a quick overview? How long have you been working internationally so far, and and who have you worked with? So,
1: since 2002, so that's almost two decades. I started as a fresh out of college, 21 year old. I started with Save the Children, and then moved to Academy for Educational Development, which was not a humanitarian organization, but development. But it kind of, I immediately felt like, okay, after working with Save the Children, this is not the space for me, kind of feeling. And then I went back to the humanitarian uh, space and I have worked with UNACR for more than a decade now. Uh, in between that, I had worked with uh, the International Human, uh, the International Rescue Committee and Johns Hopkins University.
0: Okay, wow. And so can you tell us a little bit more about how you got started? So you were just sort of fresh out of university and uh, you just naturally transitioned over to development work. How did that sort of get started for you?
1: So... How it started was for me at least it was an accident it was a total accident because my university had uh, an internship program for the three top high achieving uh, students in the class every year and we used they used to place us uh, with uh, in different international organizations and i was placed with uh, save the children since my second year the summer of my second year so I have been working with Save the Children by the time I graduated I had already worked with Save the Children for two years but that was not an automatic transition to my humanitarian work I was still looking for a job Uh, I was a a typical city girl I had absolutely no idea where my next job would be but I, I stuck around in the capital and uh save the children, one day they just called me up and they said uh, what do you think about going to this Sudanese refugee camp? We have a positioning a position for a social worker and I thought, sure, why not? And until that point, I had absolutely no idea that there were refugee camps, there were Sudanese refugees in Ethiopia and I had absolutely no idea what it meant to to be working in that kind of environment. My only qualification at that point was my willingness to go to the refugee camp because apparently the more experienced uh, professionals did not want to go there because it's a very difficult environment. It's a very harsh environment both geographically and also socially very isolated. But I was a 21-year-old looking for a job, and this sounded very, very exciting. And I thought, of course I'm going. So that's how I started.
0: <laughs> that's that's really interesting because I think most of the people that I have talked to so so far have really said that their origin, their beginning was simply by coincidence. It was by accident. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really interesting because it's, it's almost as if people are not planning for these things, you know, they just sort of manifest themselves. And all of a sudden, you have this 20 year career that you had never even thought about. Yes. How important was that sort of attitude for you where you talk about willingness to just do drastic changes or take on these sort of, you know, opportunities when they come up? How important was that in your mentality now that you look back on that?
1: Apparently very important because it defined half of my life. Now, this is almost half of my life on earth. The moment I decided, I I did not even give it uh, a lot of thought. Uh, I did not consult my friends. I did not consult my family, my parents. My parents are in academia, so they also did not have any idea of what this was. I don't think they even knew that there were refugees either. But I had made that decision there and then. And then I was already packing before even telling my parents. But that attitude helped me throughout my life, throughout my career, because you always have to take a risk. I mean, as much as you can, of of course, you you try to balance the risks, but the more you are uh, willing to take a risk, the more you're ready to to experience different things, the more you are ready to to take on new challenges, the more you find you work a little bit easier. Because if I wasn't confident enough to, to just take off at that point, by the time I arrived at that refugee camp, I would have already fallen apart because what i saw was just beyond my imagination mm-hmm. i had absolutely no idea how much suffering i was going to experience how much how much bad things that you can never imagine you would see would be in front of you but that doesn't also mean that just because you have this the, the go getter uh, attitude, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do your, your research, which is what I didn't do mm. because <laughs> I just, just took off. And when I arrived, I thought, okay, this is beyond what anyone can take. And I couldn't grasp the, the volume of human suffering that was in front of me. Mm. Yeah,
0: no, that's that's pretty powerful. I mean, how did you learn to cope with that? You know, I've worked internationally for uh, almost 30 years now. So which seems to have gone by very fast. (laughs) But, um, you know, how did you build a sort of mental resilience or a coping mechanism to deal with that? Because we've all seen sort of what appears to be insurmountable suffering. Yes. Uh, and, and we all know that in our organizations, or let me, let me just say international organizations,
1: mm-hmm.
0: we're sometimes very limited in what we can do. Yes. So how, how did that, I guess maybe a two-part question, how did that sort of shape that experience? How did that experience sort of shape your mentality and your mental resilience and, and things like mm-hmm. that in mm-hmm. terms of international work? Because you're specifically in that humanitarian sector. And mm-hmm. how has that sort of influenced you moving forward to figure out your career.
1: So uh, to in in the early 2000s, that mentality did not even exist. that you have to build your own resilience, you have to kind of protect yourself from burnout or you know all those things. And uh, the building the defense mechanism around you, It's almost unheard of. And I can only imagine what the older generation of humanitarian workers have gone through because I am not the, I'm not that. When I arrived there, there were people who have been there for 20 years doing this job. And people had all kinds of negative coping mechanisms. People drank, uh, people smoked, people gambled (laughs) and... People engaged in uh, unsafe sexual practices, all that that kind of things. And those are people who were my my parents, my parents' generations. And by the time I arrived, I knew that I needed to find someone I look up to. And that was particularly difficult for me because at that point, No female professionals would go to a refugee camp and work. I was the only female professional among hundreds of male uh, humanitarian professionals. But I had an excellent manager who immediately took me under his wings and he immediately kind of treated me like his, his daughter. And I had that person to look up to. I always felt safe around him. I always knew that he had my back. And I always knew that there are so many things that I can learn from him. So for me, the, the coping mechanism was, this is the beginning of big things to come from me. And this is where I learn. This is where... I give as much as I have, but at the same time, if I don't, I don't have it, it's okay to take off because many, many women before me had done that. Because many women older than me with families, they came, they saw, they left. For me, It was a little bit more flexible because I did not have families. I did not have anything that pulled me back. So I always thought if I left, it's because I didn't feel like I cannot do this anymore. But there are so many things I can learn and there are so many things I shouldn't do. And all of these were right in front of me. There were people betting, Pulling, pulling, <laughs> betting that I would live within a certain uh, number of weeks or months because that's what the other women did. And people would tell me that this is not for for people like you, whatever that means. This is not for city girls like you. This is not for women like you. This is not for university graduates like you. The only women I could see around were the, the, the cleaners, the janitors, all the clerical staff, but the professional staff, they were all men. And they were kind of betting against me. <laughs> so I was thinking, OK, I'm going to win this In retrospect though, that's also a bad coping mechanism because you have nothing to prove. I had nothing to prove. If I needed to go, I should have gone, but that's not what I did. So that is how my my idea of fitting into a certain humanitarian space or or working in a certain humanitarian space was shaped. but first, of, first and foremost, having a good set of uh, colleagues uh, and working with them and absorbing as much as you can from them, obviously the good things would help.
0: Definitely. I mean, taking the good and leaving the bad is always a very solid piece of advice. Yeah. when. You mentioned like sort of the, the this generational change that's occurred, yeah. you know, in terms of the work environment, especially if you're working internationally To where, you know, mental resilience used to be or psychological resilience used to be, you know, let's tough this out. Let's work through these things. And I think it's more acceptable now for people to evaluate their assignments. So when you take an assignment because you are, you know, a graduate or you're professional and you want to just get out there and get into the field, yeah. And I think it is more acceptable now to be able to say, you know what, this is not exactly for me. I mean, even recently, I've seen in in my own organization that, you know, people have, have come over and they have made a very, I think, mature and adult decision to say, yeah. this is not what I thought it was. Yep. And then having the confidence to sort of say, well, OK, then I, I'll just leave and find something else. And Absolutely. I think that's a very solid decision to make. And I, But I think it takes a certain degree of confidence as well.
1: Yeah, and with, with the older generation of humanitarian professionals, there is a certain pattern of behavior or a certain pattern of uh, advice or whatever they give you. They, they always say, oh, you came when it is easy. When, 20 years ago, it was like that. 20, when, I was, when I first started, everybody told me, 20 years ago, everybody lived in a tent. 20 years ago, everybody had a snake bite. 20 years ago, there was no cleaning. 20 years ago, some of one of them were uh, hit by a bullet or something like that. When I arrived, it was already bad for me because the only person I should be concerned about is me. And when I arrived, I knew this was way worse than I'm used to. So please do not tell me that you were bitten by a snake. That is just too much. So as uh, as we get older in this industry, people tend to, I think, uh, they they kind of value or more like romanticize the hardship. And they tell you that, Oh, you know, we we slept outside. And I am so grateful, grateful that you did that and you are now passing the baton the, the button to, to the next generation of humanitarians, but do not expect me to do that. Because now there are a lot more opportunities, a lot more facilities, a lot more uh, things that you can do for people to fit into the humanitarian uh, space. So by making, by saying these things, by making these comments, you're actually making the space a lot more, less adaptable to the new uh, generation of uh, humanitarian uh, professionals. And that is not going to be productive. I try to do that as much as I can, but I also find myself to to, to my own disappointment, I also find myself saying the same things. Like when I started 20 years ago, you know, and I'm, I'm like, but what's the point? Now we have all these facilities. We learned a lot more about how to take care of yourself as much as you take care of other people. I have. We have learned. We have so many resources now. We have been doing a lot of trainings. We have mental health resources, well-being resources, and we still refer to the 20 years when you started, and that is not going to help anyone. So, the, the more the, the more senior you 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 become in the system in that space, the best uh, you'd serve. The humanitarian space by actually acknowledging this first and foremost.
0: Yeah, I think there is a degree of, you know, romanticizing uh, being in the field and romanticizing hardship. And I I think it does require a certain degree of experience to be able to say, you know, we could do that, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that we should. Be that yeah. way, right? And yeah. so, <laughs> I, but I think that requires a degree of experience. And so, how did you manage to transition out? What What happened to you next after you started with the refugee camps? How did you move on to your next adventure?
1: So I did three years of that in uh, in that refugee camp. From uh, a social worker in one camp to a girls' education focal person in four camps in the same uh, area and then uh, all the way to acting project manager to one of the camps for uh, Save the Children. And I kind of had this feeling that this is my training. This is my internship, although paid. This is my stepping stone. I always knew that this is not where I'm going to be. I'm not going to be here for 20 years. I'm not going to be waiting for the other person to come and to tell them that, you know, I have been here for 20 years because that's what people are saying. And I knew that wasn't what I was going to do. And one day when a senior manager came to, to the camp, I told him, I am returning back to the capital with you. And it was, I didn't even uh, put in my resignation later, but... My end of contract was coming, but it was kind of uh, understood that I would continue. But then I I was like, no, I'm going back. And they immediately started uh, negotiating my salary, like renegotiating my salary, because this is a lot of investment for them. And this is the first time they retained a female professional in the field for three years. And they were not going to let go and I was not going to be convinced. So I told him, no, I'm going back. And there were not many flights. So I told them, I'm I'm going back with you. So we went back to the capital and we renegotiated on how I am going to be involved. And they decided I'll be in the capital, but support the field. And as soon as I arrived in the capital, I found that this was not what I was meant to do. I immediately, not regretted, but I immediately felt like, okay, no, it doesn't feel right. So what's, how can you support a program 800 kilometers away from the program? and there were no cell phones there were there were no communication email i don't remember if we had emails it was radio yes radio so you whenever you wanted to talk to someone you had to be on the radio and it, it just didn't feel right so i couldn't continue and i had to leave that organization and then join uh, a development uh, based organization in the capital, I worked for two years with full knowledge that I'm going back to the field. But okay. that two years also I felt I, I took it as an opportunity to compare and contrast and to to learn what I wanted to do in the future, and it was a very good learning uh, two years for me because I knew what was on the other side of the coin. So Mm -hmm. I didn't have any regrets, but I I also uh, went away for uh, my grad school. I did my grad school, and uh, I went back to humanitarian work after that.
0: Okay, interesting. So how did you build that sort of self-awareness? You know, the self-awareness of how you you know, sort of decided that you were at not really at your limit, but that you were sort of you had peaked, I guess I would say, in that one yeah. position and that you needed to go. And then the awareness to be able to say, OK, we're here because you're still fairly young at this age, right? I mean, yeah, you yeah, you I started, was
1: 24. <laughs> and yeah.
0: then you're, you know, you're negotiating your own future, negotiating a position. They obviously wanted to keep you. But you maintained a self-awareness to be able to negotiate a position, then realize it wasn't for you, and then decide to, to to be, you know, aware enough to be able to compare and contrast different organizations.
1: Yeah. For me, back in the field, what I was doing stopped feeling right or exciting. Or every morning prior to that, every morning I would wake up and I had something new to do, but at that point I felt like everything I was doing was a repetition of what I've been doing and there was nothing new for me left. And I guess it's also uh, that my age is also a factor, you know, Uh, you feel like, oh, you know, I'm very, I'm not feeling this. Although I made a lot of friends, and uh, I also had this very good uh, circle of friends in in the in the camp in one of the camps, and one of those people, uh, one of those guys, actually, we went to uh, the same grad school, uh, undergrad school, and he came and joined me in one of the camps. But with all that with all that nice things happening around me, I I stopped feeling like I was learning new things. I stopped feeling there isn't something new I can contribute. And at the same time, I also started feeling kind of, I was kind of getting scared of myself a little bit and uh, scared in a sense, I'm always around people who drank a lot, who smoked a lot and who gambled a lot. And I found myself gambling and (laughs) we played a lot of uh, card games and it wasn't just for the fun of it. We were literally gambling. And I was sitting in a big circle of guys uh, as uh, an only woman And most of these people drank a whole cassette of beer overnight. And the bill came and we split it down the middle. And every day I used to pay the same amount and I never drank. I had a soft drink the whole night and then I paid maybe for 20 beer. And I was like, no, no, I can't. I can't stay here, and my story about living and working here, be sitting with this group of people every night and paying for twenty beer every night. This cannot be my my story when I go back. And at the same time, I was also saving money for my grad school, and this did not really add up. So <laughs> that's how I decided to leave.
0: Well, there's a choice between paying for beers or grad school, I guess. Right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> so, yeah, literally.
0: Yeah. And so what I have sort of found, at least in my experience anyway, and I welcome sort of your perception on this as well, is I think there's a, a sort of a a standard time frame, I guess, I would say, Um of about and it tends to coincide with sort of international project cycles right which is sort of this typical three maybe five year cycle but generally about three mm-hmm. and i found out that in most of the positions i've been in i would get to about three years and then i would say i kind of have learned everything here yeah you know and i think you could almost pick out because we see it also in terms of the, the way that the the organizations are doing contracts these days you know sort of Either plus three, or it's three years, and then we want you to move, we're sort of seeing that organically through the organizations as well. But even for me, in my experience, it's been an issue of that you get to about three years, and you kind of say, okay, like, I think I know everything about this position, and I need to do something else. So Mm -hmm. I'm not surprised that sort of at that three-year mark that you felt like you were, you kind of maxed out in your potential. Yeah, yeah. How has it been for you since then? You know, So you, you graduated your master's, you start working for other organizations. It, how does that sound with that three-year cycle? Does that sound about right? Or what has your experience been?
1: No, uh, it became shorter and shorter, actually. So after grad school, I, I came back home and I made the very conscious decision to not have a long-term position with any organization. So I started consulting. So that gave me a little bit of an idea of what everybody did because I consulted with different organizations. And also uh, that's when I decided, okay, this is the organization I want to work with in the future, which was UNHCR. Uh, But going into the UNHCR system is not easy. Uh, many people uh, do internship, many people do volunteer work and that's what I did. I volunteered in Rwanda. That was the second three-year cycle I did in Rwanda. I did uh, three years. Again, it was the same feeling. At the end of the third year, I was thinking, okay, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm drowning here. I need to take off. So three years was... The same feeling. But after that, it was more like a year and a half. After the 18-month cycle, I'm, all, I'm I'm. ready to go. Two years, I can do. More than that? No. I haven't done more than that since.
0: So you haven't done more than two years? Uh, no. Since no. you've learned that
1: lesson? No. Yeah. No. And I always feel like this is not fair to me. And it's not fair to the position I'm holding because you can't give your 100% when you're feeling, I'm not learning anymore because Mm -hmm. part of what you're supposed to do is learn. Right. And if you're not doing that, you're not doing anyone any favor.
0: And I think that's really interesting because when we talk about the international organizations and and many of them, not all Mm -hmm. of them. But mm-hmm. many of them these days sort of say, you know, we're not we're not retirement organizations, right? Mm-hmm. We're not career organizations, you know? Yeah. So they almost encourage you to move. But at the same time, I also understand that they're losing people all the time. So it's yes. this constant sort of balance of like, we want people to rotate, but we also want you to stay. And they're trying to achieve this magical balance somewhere that I think is, is really quite difficult to do.
1: Yeah. And... Uh... The term uh, work-life balance uh, also was kind of coined, I think, in, in the mid-2000s, maybe late-2000s. And managers were more aware of uh, uh, what it takes to be a good manager and uh, what warning signs to look for in, in their uh, employees' and organizations as a whole started talking about uh, work-life balance, burnout, safeguarding, and all these things started to, to kind of take off. And with that, people are also more aware of what their limits are and how long they can be valuable at a certain position, I think. And that's mm-hmm. also more acceptable now than before. Because before, people almost feel guilty for 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 living because they kind of feel like, okay, I owe it to, I don't know who, but they feel like they owe someone something. So they don't want to say what they want to do with their lives.
0: I think there's, a, again, a balance to be achieved with that. Like, I, I appreciate the fact that people feel you know, dedicated to their organizations. But I think you also have to, because of the environment, because of the context and the way that we work, uh, you have to take ownership of your career because nobody's going to help you with that, right? Mm -hmm. It's not going to be something like, you know, many of us started by accident and then we kind of continue to build our network and things like that. But it's very rare when somebody's just going to tap you on the shoulder and say, oh, hey, come over here. Like nobody's going to take care of you, right? No. No. And so you have to, while I, to your point, like I appreciate the, the, the loyalty to the organization. I also really encourage people to be entrepreneurial in their approach, to take ownership for their career and, yes. and manage it, you know, and this is, yeah. we can sort of talk briefly before the podcast, but. This is something when people talk about managing careers, nobody's talking about managing international careers. That's still something that we all have to sort of figure out on our own as we go through this whole thing. And and that's quite strange to to experience.
1: Yeah. And there are so many uh, several layers of factors that you have to consider when you're talking about international careers. Uh, being a woman is one factor, Mm -hmm. one of the obvious factors, Uh, a person of color, uh, a person coming from a certain background, a person coming from a certain religious background. You have different layers that you need to consider and you should, some people have a lot more things to consider than others when they're managing their career. And managers... And organizations in general need to take that into consideration, which is what we're doing at the moment. Most of uh, the organizations that we work with have all this um, diversity, inclusion, cultural awareness and sensitivity uh, trainings and practices, but trainings and trainings can only go as far then it comes down to the person. Some people have the pressure of going back home and having a family. Some people have the pressure of not being in a certain kind of place. Some people have the negative influence and the negative pressure of being in a certain place. Some people feel unwelcome in some places. Some people feel more welcome than other people. So, your career is a product of all these variables. It's never one plus one, two. So, you should always look at what you're doing from the angle of how this is going to affect me as a person. And as a result, how i'm going to give my 100% if i am going to give my 100% if you don't and this is a very entitled opinion uh, and i recognize that not everybody can say that if you don't if you cannot give your 100% then you have to leave because most of us we struggle we know that we cannot give 100% but we still try to make that happen most of us do not have the luxury of just taking off when we don't when we're not in a position to give one, our 100% i recognize that and i acknowledge that and this is a very entitled opinion but that should also be always at the back burner and you should always think about that too
0: yeah, I think the the opinion of a you know giving a hundred percent is is fairly abstract. You know, hundred yes. percent of of what and a hundred percent according to who, right? Yeah, so absolutely. you know we are we are a, an accumulation of all of our experiences, and so yes. I, I think again the the common theme being we just have to be self aware that. You know, at the end of the day, if we're not capable of focusing on our job because we have other pressures, social pressures, whatever the case is, yeah. then we, we need to acknowledge that and we need to deal with that some way. And, and one of the things that you've mentioned a number of times here, which nobody's ever really talked about, I would say even within the international organizations or so getting into some, some other territory here, but mm-hmm. um, is really the way that people act when they work internationally, right? And so I found it also very interesting from a psychological perspective because these coping mechanisms that people are using, yes. These traditional mechanisms you've already mentioned, right? Yes. Uh, Happen in every country, in every mission, everywhere in the world. Yeah. So the the interesting thing is like it and it's I don't know how to phrase it exactly, but we're seeing that people revert to these mechanisms because they're not able to cope in any other way. And sometimes you are in very restrictive environments. And so you just, you have limited freedom of movement. You can't go anywhere. You're stuck on a camp. You can only do so many things. It's been a few months. You're going, you know, sort of crazy, but, um, you see that people revert to these same mechanisms. And so. I also sort of, you know, I would encourage people, if those things, if one of your defaults is to be heading to the bars or doing things like that, you know, you don't want to do those things in other countries. If that's your coping mechanism, then this is probably not the best place for you. Because in the absence of everything else, that's all you have sometimes. That's going to be a very difficult time.
1: Yeah. Even worse, you might find yourself in a place where you cannot do that either. Hmm. You don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's say if my uh, go-to coping mechanism is drinking and I happen to be in a place where I cannot even drink, that is even worse than drinking. Right. Because there are so many places where drinking is not accessible. Absolutely. Yeah. So you can't just take a role because the role looks very interesting or the job description fits your capabilities or you did very well in the interviews you should always do your research and the good thing about what is happening now is information is readily accessible unlike yeah. uh when I started, and probably when many people started before me, when nothing was available, you were just sent off. Now you can can talk to people, you can um, research, you can go to LinkedIn and find people who've been to a a certain place, and you can always make, uh, you, you can do all your researches and make your decision. And I know this sounds very counterproductive but you shouldn't always trust your instincts because we always say oh you know I can manage you know as 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 a person you're meant to handle more than you're dealt with or that's what we think but we shouldn't always assume that we're capable of handling things because sometimes we 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 kind of think, okay, if drinking is not accessible, I can manage, you know? What's the worst that can can happen to me? You know, I will not drink. But as soon as you arrive, you find it more than you can handle. You miss drinking and that's not nice. You'll be miserable. What is worse than someone not having what they want? Uh, Or what they find find is comforting is not having it, right? So you'll be miserable. You'll be miserable to your friends. You'll be miserable to your colleagues. You'll be miserable to to the role you're supposed to be a good fit for. So it doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, and I think that comes back to self-awareness. Yeah. Right. And so not even, you know, when you are planning your international career, when you want to start working internationally and it's the self-awareness of what your own personal limitations are. But I think be willing to, to take a chance, be willing to, to risk and explore like, like you did when you started your career and then when I started mine. Mm-hmm. But again, once you get there, acknowledging the fact that like this may or may not be for you, because you maybe you need a position somewhere else or a different country, whatever the case is, you can always, you know, try and, and do something else. So I think that's all, just you know, critically important. But we're starting, we're starting to creep up on an hour. Then, and it's gone very quickly for me, anyway. But um,
1: yeah, I told you, we, you shouldn't let us talk. <laughs> <laughs> the,
0: if if the the final question that we always close out with, you know, and, and the, this, yeah, I think it's a is a great question to ask many people because there's very different answers. But you know, if you were going to start over again, knowing everything that you know now, mm-hmm. what would you do differently?
1: I think I would have asked that senior manager who offered me the job without even me applying for it who are refugees? What are refugees? I had absolutely no idea who these people were and what the work was and uh, I did not even ask how far out this refugee camp was and where. So I would have asked that person as many questions as I could and understand what it means to be, to hold that role. That would be the first thing. That would be my tabula rasa. That that would be my blank slate. And absorb as much information. And from there, get... Uh, culturally appropriate dressing. I was <laughs> as I said, I was a city girl with low rise jeans, you know the uh, Christina Aguilera style low rise jeans and it was the early 20,000 and when I arrived in that refugee camp, I was so shocked that <laughs> these people, although in my head, how how much different these people could be you know, they're in this country you know this is the same country and even to me the, the 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 amount of diversity was mind-blowing had i asked all those questions i would have had maybe a little bit high-rise jeans to start with and uh Maybe I could have learned a little bit of the culture of the people that I am going to be serving. I wouldn't just land. It was as if I was landing on Mars and learning the language and the culture of the aliens. Not that they were the aliens, but because I was just so ignorant that I didn't know. So I would have started over with that and also uh, I would say, if you feel like at the back of your head, if you have this nagging feeling that you might not do this job really very well, it's most probably because you're not qualified for it. So try and do a little bit of training, a little bit of uh, you know self upgrade. I have found myself several times, not at the beginning of my career necessarily, even uh, recently, I found myself thinking, okay, there are these terminologies that are flying around and I feel like I know them, but do I really? So you have this nagging doubt. When you have that doubt, it's most probably because you don't know them. So try and Figure that out. Try and enroll in some kind of trainings. Ask a friend. Ask a colleague. Ask your manager. People are more than happy to help you out. And do not just go in blindly. That will not help anyone. And your two weeks of, uh, I don't know, backpacking in a certain country, that is not experience enough. You do not know anything about that community. You might assume that, oh, you know, I backpacked in in Thailand for two years for two weeks, so how difficult can this work be? It is going to be very, very difficult. That's not experience enough. You backpacked, and this is a job that deals with people. It's not. Swimming and beaches and street food—it's different. So that is the, the the mental preparedness I would think of if I had to start over.
0: Hmm. Very interesting.
1: Okay, so I'll, I'll have one more
0: last last question here. So mm-hmm. this is something I I often think about for me, and 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 I ask a few people sometimes the same question. Mm-hmm. Um, How much have you changed because you've been working internationally? I mean, how much has that actually sort of, because you mentioned culture, yes. how much has that sort of shaped who you are today because you had this different route, this different career where you're exposed to all these different cultures and it sort of forces you to question, you know, everything you sort of learned, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And me coming from the United States, there's a certain culture there, you know, mm-hmm. and, and a certain way of looking at things. But having been outside the United States more than I've been in the United States now, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I go back and I feel like I'm in a different culture, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there, I think there's core changes that happen to us when we work in an international career. And I'm just very curious about how much you've changed.
1: A lot and not at all. Okay. Both at the same time. A lot because that. A uh, 21-year-old who started in that refugee camp, the naive and the very energetic and the I-know-it-all 21-year-old is not there anymore because now I am confident enough in myself to say I do not know things. So that is a big thing uh, for me. It's a big change. And I am confident enough. I am self-aware enough to recognize that I have so many things that I do not know before I go anywhere, before I meet anyone, even if it's meeting a person for a coffee, let alone traveling to a whole country and meeting uh, a whole community of people and working with them. So that changed a lot. But at the same time, nothing changed in a way, I'm still that person who loved to be with my friends, who always had, uh, you know, a strange sense of humor, who is uh, sometimes considered the party uh, butterfly, the the social butterfly. I am the same person. Whoever had known me since 20 years ago would look at me and think it's the same ticket I think. And I hope, I hope.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing your experiences, insights on your international career. Um, it, it's been really great having you on and hearing your perspective. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. And I hope this helps someone somewhere out there.